his campaign, as we all know, um, it went even better than I think anybody could have predicted. His fundraising numbers are insane, dwarfing everybody else. I mean, it really is, um, (laughs) it really is a reminder of the force that is Bernie Sanders, how he lit a fire under everybody pushing for these uh, populist left ideas. Um, So I'm going to go over the numbers in just a second. We're going to lead with that story because it is so glorious. Let's all bathe in that story together. Um, We're also going to talk about Tulsi Gabbard going on The View and handling just a barrage of silliness on foreign policy, and she does a great job keeping her cool and breaking everything down. Um, We also have CNN deciding to uh, jump off a cliff and taking the scraps of seriousness they have left in their organization and uh, flushing it down the toilet. Uh, Cloud Boot Jar did a town hall a few days ago, and I'm going to break down some of her answers there. They're really bad, unsurprisingly. (laughs) Tucker Carlson invited uh, Lefty on his show, and it did not go well. I got uh, the unreleased video of that one. I mean, it's released now, but it wasn't released on Fox News. They actually scrapped the interview, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, And later on, Donald Trump was planning, and might actually still be in the process of doing it, to give nuclear technology to the Saudis. What could go wrong? (laughs) 
Oh, God, that's so fucking terrifying for so many reasons. So without further ado, let me take a sip of my hashtag Big Seltzer. Before we jump into it, Okay, let's get started, and um, Bernie's fundraising numbers are first on the chopping block. So Bernie Sanders launched his uh, campaign a few days ago, and in all seriousness, I think it went better than anybody was expecting. Um, I'm not sure, but my guess is, even internally, they were probably like, whoa, whoa, Everybody is still feeling the burn. In fact, the burn has turned into a giant forest fire, and nobody could put this thing out. So uh, a lot of people were um, waiting, like you and I were, for this official launch, and uh, everybody started making it rain on Bernie. (laughs) So take a look at this. Senator Bernie Sanders, the self-described Democratic Socialist, received $5.9 million from about 223,000 donors in the 24 hours after he announced his repeat bid for the U.S. presidency. In total, the Vermont Independent has raised $6 million. That number's way higher now, by the way, this article's from yesterday. With small-dollar pledges mirroring the average donation of $27 from his 2016 run, according to his campaign. The fundraising rose from the $4 million the campaign said he amassed as of the evening of February 19th, the day he announced. Sanders, 77, is seeking to become the Democratic Party's nominee. His fundraising efforts eclipsed that of Senator Kamala Harris, whose initial $1.5 million from about 38,000 donors had been the biggest first-day money haul of the 2020 race so far. The California Democrat announced her bid for the Democratic nomination January 21st. Okay, so, all right, think about that. Think about that. Kamala Harris announces raises $1.5 million from 38,000 donors. That was big news. Everybody's like, oh, my God, Kamala Harris. Oh, it must be so popular. Look at these numbers. Ooh. Bernie comes along, and he's like, yeah, step aside. $5.9 million from 223,000 donors. 223,000. I think everybody's underestimating the American people in that people are done being placated, man. Everybody wants the real deal Holyfield. And actually, you're going to see some of this in some stories that we're going to do later on with Amy Clabboot Jar's town hall, where people are asking questions. And it's like all of the questions are the kind of questions that any, any of us would ask. And these are not necessarily secular talk listeners. But like one of the questions was like, yeah, why can't we have Medicare for all when every other developed country has it? And, uh, you know, like, we always talk about how we're number one, but we can't do a basic thing that every other country could do. So, th- like, those are questions being asked at a town hall of Amy Cloudbooch. Our regular people are asking about this stuff now. I think that everybody's like, okay, we're ready for the real deal, Holyfield. The old school Clinton-style Democrats, the new Democrats, as they were called, the triangulators, whose whole argument was like, me, bro? I'm above the fray. I, like, agree with Republicans and Democrats from time to time. And I'm a middle-of-the-road kind of character, you know? Uh, it was, you know, Bill Clinton famously, the era of big government is over. That style of Democrat, gonzo, dead and gone. And Cloud Boot Jar is one of the last remnants of it. Howard Schitt's, even though he's running as an independent, is one of the last remnants of it. And they're going to have an embarrassing go of it this time around. You know, they're going to, 1% or less is what we're talking about if they actually stay in for, for uh, 
you know, the election. But now we have Democrats who are going back to their FDR roots, and very clearly so. There's no, you know, hiding the ball with that either. It's very, it's, it's up front. Uh, Bernie Sanders was asked in his uh, launch interview, hey, would taxes go up on corporations under you? And he scoffed, and he was like, absolutely. And that's what people are looking for now. They're not looking for the, well, you know, in order to make a decision on something like corporate taxes, you need to call a meeting and have a, a boardroom full of people, including the executives from the companies, and you sit down and you try to figure out what would work best for uh, all of society and how much revenue are we going to raise in the short term versus the long term, and is this going to have a confiscatory effect on the growth of the economy? And Like, shut the fuck up! Can you take a bold stand on policy positions that are overwhelmingly popular? People are tired of being placated. So even though Kamala Harris and like Cory Booker and Kirsten Gillibrand, they're actually way more clever than like Hillary Clinton, who was still running on the me, I'm, I'm the candidate who, who can win because I'm a pragmatic progressive. They're not silly enough to think that that centrist ideology is still popular and is where the energy of the party is. But they're not even putting on a convincing facade to make you think that they're the real deal Holyfield. So, uh, I mean, that's, that shows you that there's one main character here, one main character who is the front runner by a mile and a half. And listen, it's at the point where it's delusional in corporate media for them not to acknowledge this. They really do think like, oh, no, the fringe, Bernie, old, you know, crazy ideas. Meanwhile, again, the polls show his ideas are overwhelmingly popular. But they have, they have no clue what's about to hit them. They have no clue. And by the way, Washington Post did it again. Remember last time they ran like 14 uh, hit pieces on him within one 24-hour period? Well, now they just did it. Uh, they're just ramping up. They did four hit pieces on him in one day. And, uh, by the way, the argument was why Bernie's massive fundraising overhaul is not, you know, is nothing to, nothing to be impressed by. Wait a second. It was corporate media for the longest time that told us the hallmark of a, a serious candidate is fundraising. Now, I actually don't agree with that. <laughs> I think that you have to go based off their policy ideas and based off uh, their poll numbers. That's a much better indicator than uh, money. But okay, if we accept your argument and we accept your criteria, well, he just won based on, off your criteria. But now they're poo-pooing it and downplaying it. Why? Because, again, he's the non-corporate candidate. So now they're like, money? This guy's now beating our ass at our game? Well, that, now let me tell you why money doesn't really matter. Oh, God, here we go. Keep goalposts moving. That goalpost is just going to move endlessly. That's what's going to happen. And again, also, let's keep it real, it's because it's small-dollar donors giving to Bernie. So you got the nurse down the street, the kindergarten teacher a couple blocks over, regular people who are like, yeah, this guy's going to look out for me, so we're going to donate to him. That, that, no, 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 no. Now money is not, why, this isn't really anything. Watch, let me write an article about why this doesn't mean anything. They, they would rather have the elite approval, the corporate approval, and, you know, the, stat, the approval of the status quo 
the approval of the people who are already the elites in society. And that's going to the likes of Kamala Harris and some others. But Bernie Sanders is by far and away, by far and away, the favorite. And it's, it's honestly, it's, he's crushing them. I'm going to be very interested to see what ends up happening in the debates, but then also once you, once you get to Iowa and once we start getting to the primaries and the caucuses, because there's a lot of corporate media hacks who are going to be fucking floored by the results. But you know who won't be floored by the results? Me and all of you. Um, where the fuck is my... I swear to God, every day I bring a goddamn pen in here, and then I can't find it. All right, let's go on an adventure together. Let's go on an adventure together and find a pen. What do you say? Oh... Can't do the show without a pen, bitch. I swear there's like a vortex in that room where pens get sucked up in the vortex. All right, well, let's get two just for, just for the fun of it. Got them. Doing a little walk and talk on secular talk. Okay. All right, now let's talk about Tulsi Gabbard. Don't worry, we got more Bernie later on in the show. Um, okay, this is a long clip. In fact, this might break a secular talk record for the, the, how long the clip is. But I have to show you the entire thing. I don't have a choice. It's that compelling a video and that important a video. So Tulsi Gabbard went on The View, and they pressed her on foreign policy in so many uncomfortable ways. Um, they, they treat her here like she came out for cannibalism. When she says, honestly, pretty obvious things to normal Americans, she's like, I don't, we probably shouldn't be randomly toppling the Venezuelan government or the Syrian government. That's none of our business, and it's a bad idea. Um, but they act like she's insane. And this is so wild to watch because watching her campaign, whenever she speaks in front of uh, crowds of regular people, they're all cheering and they're happy because she's talking about ending war and using that money to invest here at home to help Americans. Um, But when she's in corporate media circles, it's the exact opposite. And it's like she's in an episode of The Twilight Zone every time she does one of these establishment shows. This is really wild to watch. But she puts on a master class in responding and, and focusing on the policy and staying calm. You know, you got to commend her for staying calm here because I can guarantee you something. If I was in her shoes, I would not have been able to remain that calm because, honestly, it, a lot of the questions and the framing of the questions, it's insultingly stupid. And it, they're also really arrogant, too. Like, you'll see with Meghan McCain here, like, the way they're framed and her hubris and asking these questions. Like, Megan, you don't know dick about these issues, okay? You don't. You have no idea what you're talking about. So can you have a little humility? But, of course not. Anyway, I digress. Let's watch Tulsi. This is a long clip, but it's worth it. 
We'll watch it and then we'll break it down. Um, how did your experience fighting in Iraq shape your outlook uh, of the United States' role in foreign policy? Because uh, in my research, I found that you have a strict non-interventionist approach, and you are against the United States entering countries and uh, being there for this sort of regime change. Yeah. Yeah. No, as a... Uh, as a soldier, I deployed with our, our brigade combat team from Hawaii. I volunteered to deploy with them to Iraq in 2005, uh, which was the height of, of the conflict there. Mm -hmm. uh, I served in a medical unit where every single day I was confronted with, uh, in a heart-wrenching way, the high human cost of war. The very first thing I did every single morning was go down a list of names of every single American uh, casualty, every single service member who had injured the day before. And I had to see if any of our uh, brigade soldiers were on that list, make sure they got the care that they needed, or to evacuate them as quickly as possible. But as I went through this list every single day, um, I was struck. Uh, with the names and the faces of my brothers and sisters who were paying the price uh, for this war. I was struck with their, their families, their loved ones at home, uh, who were so stressed and so anxious uh, for the well-being of their loved ones. Uh, it is those experiences of understanding and knowing firsthand the cost of war, both on our service members, on our veterans, uh, as well as uh, the cost on the people in the countries where we intervene, uh, as well as the trillions of dollars, our taxpayer dollars that are spent on waging these wars, dollars that are sorely needed uh, to address the very real urgent needs of, of our families, our communities, our neighbors right here at home. So should we not get involved when we see atrocities abroad? We have to understand, looking at Iraq, Libya, and Syria, for example, uh, that there are brutal dictators in the world. And unfortunately, there are people who are suffering as a result of that. But in so many examples throughout history, when the United States takes action and intervenes and launches these regime change wars to topple these dictators, the suffering of the people in these countries increases. Uh, their lives are made uh, worse off than they were before. There is far more death uh, and destruction. Uh, Libya is a perfect example. Muammar Gaddafi was toppled. Uh, now, today, we have more uh, terrorist groups in Libya than ever before. We have Libyan people, women and children, being sold in open markets uh, as slaves. So while these wars which are... Which didn't have before when he was which there. Which didn't, didn't exist before. No. So, so while... Well, let's just finish this is one, one point, because uh, we feel for the suffering of people in these countries and we want to be able to help them. And so many of these wars are, are begun and waged from a, a place of humanitarianism. Yeah. But the reality is, and it's a harsh reality, that there, there is more suffering and more loss of life and more destruction as a result of these wars, which does not serve the people in these countries, nor does it serve our interests and our security. Congresswoman, um, first, thank you for your service, which is something I say to everyone who has served that, come on, that comes on the show, and I think it's important. Um, that being said, my understanding is you know how I feel about your stance on foreign policy, and when I hear the name Tulsi Gabbard, I think of a sod apologist. I think of someone who comes back to the United States and is spouting propaganda from Syria. You have said that the Syrian President Assad is not the enemy of the United States. 
that he's used chemical weapons against his own people 300 times. That was a red line with President Obama. That's our, that is not our enemy. 13 million Syrians have been displaced. So when you say regime change is hurtful for the country, but gassing children isn't more hurtful, it's hard for me to understand where you come from a humanitarian standpoint if you were to become president. Uh, well, you're putting words in my mouth that I've never said. You did not say that Syrian President Assad is not the enemy of the United States. Say it now. Clarify. <laughs> the, the issue here is how can we help alleviate the suffering of people. Just really one moment. Is he an enemy of the United States? An enemy of the United States is someone who threatens our safety and our security. There is no disputing the fact that Bashar al-Assad in Syria is a brutal dictator. There is no disputing the fact that he has used chemical weapons and other weapons against his people. There are other terrorist groups in Syria who have used similar chemical weapons and other weapons of terror against the people of Syria. This is, this is an unfortunate thing that wrenches at every one of our hearts. This is not something I'm disputing, nor am I apologizing or defending these actions. My point is that the reality we are facing here is that since the United States started waging a covert regime change war in Syria starting in 2011, the lives of the Syrian people have not been improved. Their well-being has not gotten to a better place. Their suffering has not decreased. It has increased in addition to the fact that Al-Qaeda is stronger in Syria today than ever before. So not only are we dealing with the fact that this regime change war we've been waging in Syria has not helped the Syrian people, it has made their lives worse off, it has also, it has also undermined our national security, leaving us in a place where Al-Qaeda is a stronger threat there than they ever have no, been before, Tulsi, Tulsi. and Iran has greater influence in Syria than ever before. Tulsi, you and I know each other, and uh, you and I have have had these uh, discussions and arguments over text and over phone. I've told you over how, how much yeah, mm-hmm. how we uh, disagree. People text, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not, we disagree on, on, on you know, this issue. We've had it on the phone as well. I'm also, I'm, I'm very troubled by, by the tweet about Venezuela mm-hmm. that you've put out, you know, that you know, we've, we've talked about that. What Maduro is doing to the people of Venezuela, there's over three million that have been displaced. People are starving. He's not allowing humanitarian aid in. He is a thug. He is a dictator. He is corrupt. And I, I am very supportive of what the United States is doing right now, leading the solidarity and support of freedom-loving Venezuelans and putting sanctions, economic and and, uh, sanctions. Why are you so against uh, intervention in Venezuela? Not military intervention, but what we are doing. Because every time the United States, and particularly in Latin America, has gotten involved in regime change, using different tools to enact that regime change, there have been both short and long-term devastating impacts. If there are ways that we can work with surrounding countries to try to get humanitarian aid into people there, then we should be doing that. But for the United States to go in and choose who should be the leader of Venezuela, that is not something that serves the interests of the Venezuelan people. That's something that they need to determine But the U.S. Themselves. is not choosing who's going to be the leader of Venezuela. It's, you know, it's millions of Venezuelans marching on the street. Just, so, just but do you put military intervention on the same level that you put economic and uh, diplomatic efforts? The United States has used both military, CIA, sanctions and other tools to intervene and enact regime change in countries around the world. Uh, Iran is a great example. 
the CIA led a covert operation to overthrow uh, the government in Iran decades ago in Mossadegh. This led to decades upon decades of hardship and suffering and authoritarian government and has led us to the place where we're dealing with many challenges. Welcome today. I'm going to come back with more from you because I think you have more to say on this and you should. Um, I'm just wondering if this particular position that you take is going to be a popular one in the Democratic Party. Uh, this is a position that I have found many Americans appreciate and understand because we understand that every one of us is paying the price for these regime change wars that are not helping people in these countries and they're counterproductive to yeah. our interests at home. I believe Trump said something similar when he was running, did he not? Am I wrong about that? He, he may have, yes. but the problem yeah, is he has, not, he has not carried through. No. He has gone back and, and has uh, uh, broken his promises. All right, so that was actually really great. Um, they just had a really long, almost a 10-minute conversation about foreign policy in the middle of the day on a major network on a really, you know, highly watched show. Um, but you could see there the framing of the questions, the default assumptions of most of the hosts is that, you know, hey, the U.S. is a force for good. We are the world police. We're always looking for to do the right thing from a humanitarian perspective, from an altruistic perspective. And um, therefore, to question that and to say, hey, maybe we shouldn't get involved, it's almost like offensive to them. It's almost, to them, it's almost like saying, hey, if there's an assault or a rape going on in, pick a city, I don't care, Philadelphia, that the, the Philly police shouldn't get involved. That's like their default assumption about the U.S.'s role in the world. And that is wildly disconnected from what the American people want, as Tulsi points out there at the end. Just to give one example, there was a poll done in 2013. There's a reason I keep citing this poll, because I haven't seen a new poll since then. Um, of, they asked people, hey, should we, do you want to stay in the war in Afghanistan? Only 17% of Americans said they want to stay in the war in Afghanistan. That means it was a majority of Democrats, a majority of independents, and a majority of Republicans who were like, let's get out. What are we doing? So that's the feeling, that's the sentiment among the people. But it's weird because the only people who get hired and rise through the ranks in the major networks and on the 24-hour news networks like CNN and MSNBC and Fox News, they all have the opposite opinion. It, again, it all goes back to, I hate being a fanboy and bringing this up endlessly, but I bring it up because it's true and it's, it's prescient. Uh, Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent. It, it's not that there's a smoke-filled backroom conspiracy where you get all the news people together and you're like, you will not bring up when the U.S. does bad things. Mo-ha-ha-ha. No, it's that the filtration process is the hiring process. So you're only going to pick people who are not going to rock the boat and who are going to more or less uh, present a view of the world that falls right in line with the establishment and the powers that be and the status quo. And so Tulsi Gabbard, it's like, oh, shit, we got one of our own in there. And now they're able to directly respond to all this nonsense. And again, it's like an episode of The Twilight Zone because she's calmly, you know, deconstructing all of their terrible points. And most of them, it's just like, it's not, it's like fucking talking to a brick wall. It's not going anywhere. But it is landing with the people. That's for damn sure. So let's break this down. First of all, Look at, the first, look at the question, the first question. Should we not get involved when we see atrocities abroad? All right, listen. We often do the atrocities. 
See, that's like a naive framing. Should we not get involved when we see atrocities abroad? Oh, you mean like when we're arming and backing and propping up the, the rogue terror regime in Saudi Arabia as they massacre women and children in Yemen and starve them to death? Should we, get, should we do regime change in, Yemen, in uh, Saudi? Is that what we should do? Like this notion of, well, I mean, obviously we should get involved when we see atrocities, right? Again, as Chomsky says, you are responsible for what you do. So you know what we're responsible for? Saudi Arabia's atrocities because we arm them and we fund them. Israel's atrocities because we arm them and we fund them. You know who we're not responsible for? Uh, Syria and Bashar al-Assad's atrocities. We don't arm them. We don't fund them. Uh, we fund the uh, jihadist rebels in many instances. So uh, we do bear some responsibility for when they do atrocities, and they do. But you want to stop terrorism around the world and you want to stop atrocities? Very simple way. Stop participating in them. Stop doing drone strikes that, you know, over 90% of the time kill innocent civilians. That's one thing you could do. Stop pumping arms into the Middle East, whether it be to Saudi Arabia, who then arms al-Qaeda on the ground in Yemen as well. Um, so that's the approach you take. The approach you take is we need to stop arming bad uh, governments, bad actors like rebels in Syria, and then you'd get a giant cut in the amount of terrorism almost overnight. And, you know, like Ro Khanna and Bernie Sanders, they led the way. By the way, I see I have the wrong uh, graphic again behind me. This is becoming a, <laughs> this is becoming a habit. But Ro Khanna and Bernie Sanders, they're the ones who actually stopped atrocities. And how did they do it? They passed a bill and successfully did it to stop the U.S. arming and, and backing Saudi Arabia in Yemen. We, they cut off our support of Saudi in Yemen. Now, it's likely that President Trump is going to veto that, but that's what stopping atrocities looks like. To get involved in Syria and to get involved in Venezuela, that is not what stopping atrocities looks like. In fact, fucking John Bolton is on the record on Fox Business Network saying it's about the oil. That's why we want to go into... Venezuela, they sit on the world's uh, biggest oil reserves and we're in contact with, you know, our oil companies. And yeah, that's what this is about. They're fucking saying it. Later on in the show, we have another story. Andrew McCabe, former FBI, and McCabe, former FBI director, he said, uh, we were in a meeting in 2017 with Trump and he said, uh, why don't we do a war with Venezuela? They have a lot of oil and they're right in our backyard. So they're saying it and fucking dipshits who don't know anything are on the view like, why shouldn't we get involved to stop atrocities? It's not about stopping atrocities. Oftentimes we commit the atrocities. Jesus, okay. So, um, another point which I have to bring up in every video on foreign policy because it's a devastating point is we back 73% of the world's dictatorships. So it's not an argument to say, oh, there are brutal dictators. Yeah, and we back 73% of them. So to say... That's a reason in and of itself to topple a regime. No, it's not. And if anything, that's an argument for us to stop backing those regimes, not to get involved in what we're not affiliated with to topple them. Um, and then finally, listen, I love that you brought up the Libya example. I don't know if she brought up Iraq there, but that's another example you can bring up. Every time they reference, oh, my God, look at Assad's crimes. You say, yeah, I know. We saw in 2002 we were talking about Saddam's crimes. And you know what? Still, toppling him was the wrong answer. 
There was a power vacuum. It's filled by worse actors. There's more death and, de and devastation and destruction for people living in the area. Maybe it's time, and this is the other part of the argument, to let other countries do what they're going to do, and we, I don't know, rebuild Flint, Michigan, because we still have poisoned water there that's poisoning kids. Like this, this notion of, oh, we must do good around the world. Our infrastructure gets a grade of D+. Plus. We have, it's not just Flint, Michigan, by the way, that has poisoned water. It's a bunch of places. I know because we've covered it on the show. Flint's the one that actually at least sometimes makes the news, although it doesn't make the news nearly as much as it should. But there's hundreds of places, maybe thousands of places around the country that have shitty poisoned water. So if you're so concerned about, oh, we must help people, help your own fucking country first. Upgrade our infrastructure. Upgrade our water system. I mean, we have a, a, a resurgence of hookworm, which is a third world disease in rural Alabama. That's according to the U.N., and you're concerned about helping Venezuelans, but actually you're not. That's the point, is you want the fucking oil. And Elliot Abrams is a guy who's in charge of Venezuela. Elliot Abrams is a guy who in the 1980s was famous for doing fake PR stunts where he pretends to send in food and help, but in reality, the cargo is filled with weapons because they're trying to arm right-wing militias to violently overthrow their respective governments. He did it in Guatemala, now in this case, he's doing it in Venezuela. And John Bolton, this fucking maniac, bloodthirsty neocon lunatic who was one of the key architects of fucking Iraq. Now all of a sudden we're supposed to believe he has a humanitarian reasons to get involved in both Iran and Venezuela because they're also trying to do regime change in Iran now, for those of you who don't know. And by the way, now they're adding, uh, what was it, Nicaragua, I think, to the list. Yesterday John Bolton was tweeting like, oh, the Nicaraguan government habit. You want to talk about bad governments. John Bolton, you are the perfect example of this. You have blood on your hands. You're a war criminal. How many deaths is John Bolton responsible for for pushing for the Iraq war relentlessly. This is, John Bolton was in the government that did torture, uh, taking away due process and habeas corpus. He's part of the government that did an offensive illegal war against a country that didn't attack us, and it's against international law. The UN said, no, you can't do this, and they did it. So you want to talk about rogue regimes. What about your fucking punk ass? How about that? Should... Should Iran or, uh, I don't care, you pick the country, Russia or China or fucking New Zealand have the right to say, well, you're a war criminal and you're still in charge, so the U.S. is a rogue regime and you guys violate international law, so now we have to come topple your government. No, it shouldn't work like that. But for some, the logic is out the door when it comes to the United States and these cackling fools who are the hosts on The View think we, we have the right to do all this stuff. No, no, no. International law does not apply to us. The Magna Carta of the Constitution doesn't apply to us. We can do whatever we want. And then we're going to scold and look down on and be condescending to a true patriot, who, by the way, you know that, that this ideology is deeply embedded in the establishment, the pro-war ideology, because Tulsi Gabbard has all of the, uh, honestly, the, the outs that usually work on the establishment types. So what do I mean? She's a woman. She's a minority woman, and she's a veteran. Usually, on those three things alone, oh, mine shut off, and we'll listen to you, you're holy. But since she's arguing for an anti-war position, all of a sudden, all those normal outs, where people can say, oh my God, you're racist, you're sexist for going after her. How can you not support the troops? Why would you be so harsh on somebody who served the country? All those normal outs are now gone. And they're like, no, we're going to smear you, and we're going to frame these questions in a ridiculous way. 
So credit to Tulsi Gabbard. I don't know how she's keeping her cool in these interviews. Because you heard the way that they're, like, Megan McCain, I think of Assad apologist when I think of you. Really? I think of person who doesn't want to wage offensive illegal wars and wants to rebuild our own country. That's what I think of when I think of Tulsi Gabbard. You think of Assad apologist. It's so, you know, the crazy thing is Megan McCain, it's like copy and paste from all of her dad's shitty opinions. You know, like, I want to bomb everywhere. She's like, yeah, right on. You're my dad. I agree. Like, can you not be a ridiculous human being? But that's what you are, Megan. That's what you are. You're a ridiculous human being. The only reason you're even sitting on that fucking panel is because of who your dad was. So, uh, you know, Tulsi Gabbard, don't know how she stayed calm, but she did. So credit to her. And by the way, final point I want to make on this is, listen, everybody knows, I'm sure Tulsi knows and everybody knows, I'm a Bernie Sanders guy. That's who I'm supporting in the 2020 election. I've not hidden that fact. And the point is, I agree with him more on policy than any other candidate. Now, that doesn't mean that Tulsi Gabbard and Elizabeth Warren aren't close. They are close. Um, But Bernie Sanders is still number one on my list. Now, having said that, what you guys need to understand is this. Tulsi Gabbard, in order to get into the debates, she needs a certain number of donors. So it doesn't go by the amount of money you raise. It goes by the number of donors that you have. So um, what I'm going to do is I will be donating. uh, uh, To Bernie, I'm doing a recurring donation, monthly donation. But um, for Tulsi and Andrew Yang and maybe even Elizabeth Warren, although I don't know about Elizabeth Warren because I think she's going to be on that debate stage anyway. I think she's going to get enough individual donors to get on that debate stage anyway. But for Tulsi and for Andrew Yang, just to be on the safe side, I'm going to donate to them so that they have that extra donors that they can then get on the debate stage because I want to see – Andrew Yang's big thing is universal basic income. Now, I have massive disagreements with him on other issues. I think he's too pro-deregulation in many respects. He's got this thing on his website about how he wants to do an automatic sunset on all regulations after a certain amount of time. I think that's crazy. He has some weird, uh, weird ideas that I would categorize as anti-First Amendment. Um, now, having said that, he puts front and center his belief in UBI. I agree with UBI, so I want him on the stage making that argument. So I, I will be trying to get Andrew Yang, Tulsi Gabbard uh, on the debate stage. And um, again, Liz is a different example. I think for sure she's going to get enough donors to get on there. But if it looks like she's not, then maybe I would donate to her as well. But Bernie's who I'm supporting, but I will be donating to Tulsi and Andrew Yang as well, because I want to see them on that debate stage, because I need somebody making the case for UBI in a very strong way. That's what Andrew Yang is going to do. And I need somebody making an unapologetic anti-war case, and that's what Tulsi Gabbard will do. Now, it's not that Bernie's not anti-war. He is. I think Bernie's foreign policy is, is overwhelmingly positive. But he does not put it front and center, um, whereas Tulsi does. So I want that voice on the debate stage. I also would like to see an alliance formed between um, Tulsi Gabbard, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren, and maybe even Andrew Yang if he does get on the debate stage, because I don't want to see – the candidates who I would consider on the populist left side of the spectrum here, I don't want to see them go for each other's jugulars. That's that's such a weird sentence. And the word jugular, what the fuck is up with that? But that, I don't want to see them go after each other. I I would rather see some sort of an alliance formed against the people who we know are more corporatist. So, but anyway, Tulsi Gabbard, great job on the view. Um, And credit to her for continuing to plow forward with this, even though she's going to get smeared relentlessly.
Okay, next. Let me tell you how shitty CNN is. So here's an infuriating headline from Politico, if I've ever seen one. Ex-Sessions spokeswoman is joining CNN as political editor. Sarah Isker will coordinate political coverage for the 2020 campaign at the network. Now, on that fact alone, terrible idea. Jeff Sessions' spokeswoman is going to be a political editor at CNN overlooking 2020 coverage. Jeff Sessions is the guy who said, good people don't smoke weed. Jeff Sessions is one of the furthest right senators in modern American history. To have his spokeswoman be in charge of news coverage for 2020 as if she's going to be some sort of an objective arbiter, I honestly think that's hilariously stupid. She shared doctored Planned Parenthood coverage. Remember the undercover sting thing um, from James O'Keefe and all those hacks? She shared that. So she's one of these anti-Planned Parenthood lunatics. Also, she questioned uh, climate change. She's going to be overseeing 2020 coverage. Now, when, when this leaked and there was a backlash to it, oh, my God, all the CNN hacks were, uh, you know, trying to cover their own ass. Oh, no, see, her role isn't as big as you think it is. It's just a smaller part of the overall 2020 coverage. We got a lot of employees. And <laughs> Under no circumstances should she be in charge of overseeing 2020 coverage, even if it's just a tiny sliver of the 2020 coverage. I mean, insanity, insanity this is. Now, why would they do this? Listen, the reality is CNN is always accused of having a liberal bias. Liberal bias, liberal bias, liberal bias, liberal bias, liberal bias. That's what the right wing screams all day and night. So they, CNN bends over backwards to try to counteract that narrative. And in the process of doing it, they'll do stupid shit like this. So that when somebody on the right says, oh, my God, liberal bias, they get to go, us? Bro, look, we hired Sarah Isker. This is, this is uh, Jeff Sessions' former spokeswoman. I mean, we, obviously we're not liberally biased. She's overseeing 2020 coverage. She's a dyed-in-the-wool right-winger. What do you mean? So, like, to combat those accusations, they hire somebody like this, and then they get to play the us? Bro, we're neutral. We, cut, we look at both sides because they can point to her. They can point to people who are not on the left, but who are sympathetic to corporate Democrats, who are centrists. So they go, oh, we got the centrists and we got these, uh, the right-wingers, so we're good, right? Actually, no, this is the problem. You have an establishment bias. By the way, this Sarah Isker woman, she worked in the Trump administration, okay? She had to go to Trump and say, sir, I'm on board with your agenda. Can I please get hired to work uh, with Jeff Sessions when Jeff Sessions was in the administration? And because she had said anti-Trump shit back during the campaign was happening. So she had to go and kiss the ring and do a loyalty pledge. And then she was working in the Trump administration. But they hired her, I'm sure nominally, because she would, she's like, yeah, I don't really like Trump, but I'm also right wing. So th- that's exactly what I would expect from hacky CNN. 
It's like, okay, we love right-wingers as long as they don't like Trump. Even though she worked in the Trump administration, she has a history of critical uh, Trump tweets. So, I mean, think about it. This is why you see, like, Bill Kristol is yucking it up on the Morning Joe panel. Bill Kristol is a fucking neocon war criminal who's never met a war he didn't like. Max Boot is now, you know, all over the place. Max Boot is another idiot neocon who's never had an intelligent thought in his life on foreign policy. But now these guys are put front and center as if it's like, oh, they're on the right, but they don't like Trump. How intellectual of them. No, they're fucking idiots. Just because they don't like Trump, that's easy. What a low bar. Jesus fucking Christ. (laughs) I, I don't like Trump, therefore I'm an intellectual. No, you're still a fucking jackass. So, but this is classic CNN. Like, that's the spectrum of debate. Let's get establishment right wing hacks and establishment liberal hacks, pro democratic party hacks, and then you get to turn around everybody and say, bro, we're neutral. Don't you guys love neutrality, bro? No, the spectrum of debate that's allowed at CNN is the Democratic Party is 100% right and the Republican Party is 100% right, and that's it. <laughs> you can't go right of that, you can't go left of that. So, by the way, how many uh, pro-Bernie Sanders voices are there in the media? I'll wait. Has CNN been, uh, you know, emailing me nonstop and saying, you know, Kyle, we just hired this right winger in order to oversee 2020 election coverage. We think you should come here, too, for balance's sake, to oversee 2020 election coverage. Oh, please. They don't let people like me in the fucking building. Actually, the only people who did credit to them was Fox News, and they didn't know what they were getting. (laughs) So... There's one. Nina Turner's the only one that they allow in on these shows. That's it. Everybody else is... Oh, you're a Bernie supporter? (laughs) He's old. (laughs) Far left. (laughs) Pass the champagne and caviar and get me my private driver, please. So they are the hacks of all hacks. By the way, let me give you some more information on Sarah Isker. She was also deputy campaign manager for Carly Fiorina's presidential campaign. So objective she'll be with the 2020 news. She worked for Mitt Romney. She worked for the RNC. And my favorite, she worked for Ted Cruz. Also, she has donut journalistic experience. None. Zilch. Nada. Zero. So let's hire somebody to oversee our news coverage with no news experience, no journalism experience, no experience as a reporter, but a hack who worked for the RNC, Ted Cruz, Carly Fiorina, uh, and Jeff Sessions. Are you trying to be just objectively shitty? Is that what you're going to try to do here? Listen, and that's one of the problems with CNN is they have a bias towards the establishment and towards neutrality, Okay. And the bias towards the establishment is obvious. Like I just told you, they have pro-Democratic Party voices, pro-Republican Party voices. And that's the spectrum of debate that's allowed, even though both parties are massively corrupt and everybody hates them. And the neutrality bias is, what do you mean? We have voices from both sides. Therefore, you know you're getting the truth here. No, no, no. Neutrality is not the same thing as objectivity. Objectivity means keeping it real no matter what. So objectivity means both parties are massively corrupt and they're coming to screw you and very few people are talking about it in a serious way and very few politicians are actually looking out for you. That's the truth. That is an opinion you will never hear on CNN, ever. Ever. You either get rah-rah Republican Party or rah-rah Democratic Party. And um, 
they, they have gone so down the rabbit hole of shittiness, there's no way out. There's no way out. They will never turn into a network that does a good job anymore. They're, they're done. They're not going to report the facts to you. They're not going to hold people in power accountable. Their entire network is just one establishment hack after another, cheerleading either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. That's the, the spectrum of debate that's allowed, which is why, by the way, none of them saw Bernie Sanders coming. None of them know what's about to hit them with Bernie Sanders. The framing is always going to be he's a looney tune, he's far left, he's insane, and he's got no chance. So now you know, but honestly, from a selfish perspective, I shouldn't even be attacking them for all this stuff because they make us popular. You know? And listen, I'm not, I don't hide what my beliefs are, uh, but I am, I'm a political commentator, but I also believe in Bernie Sanders' philosophy because I believe in social democracy, and I believe in social democracy because of the studies that prove that it's superior and that it makes sense. So I don't hide that. I tell you up front, but one thing I make sure I do is always give you the facts and the information and always back up my claims and always try to hold power accountable. That's not something you're going to see on CNN. It's one political hack after another, but they have a billion-dollar budget, so they get away with it and they force themselves into your, into your world whether you're at the fucking bar, you're at the airport, and it's the only thing that's on TV. So um, thank you, CNN, for making my YouTube political commentary show somehow better than your shitty-ass establishment hack network. All right, time to talk about Amy Cloudboot Jar. I got videos, bitch. Amy Cloudboot Jar weighed in on Medicare for All. She's going to explain what her position is. Now, you're going to see a little clip here. Before this clip that you're about to see, there was another, like, four- or five-minute meandering rant where she was trying to explain her um, position on health care. It was obnoxiously long and unnecessarily long, and she was rambling, and it didn't make much sense. But this little nugget that you're about to see here is what her position is. She sums it up. Take a look. Well, I think it's something that we can look to for the future, but I want to get action now. Uh, and I think the best way we do that is something that we actually wanted to do back when we were looking at the Affordable Care Act and we were stopped um, was trying to get a public option in there. And that is a way, if you all remember that debate, uh, that is a way to provide a public alternative that's real, even beyond the exchanges. Uh, so that we can bring down the rates. And then we can look at other options, but we have to start somewhere, and I think we could do that much more immediately. So no Medicare for all? Uh, it, it could be a possibility in the future. I'm just looking at something that will work now. Oh. Yeah, no. No, no, no. Let me explain to you why this is unacceptable. It's unacceptable because we know you're going to get tremendous resistance on the issue of Medicare for all, from every elected Republican, even though, by the way, 52% of the Republican voters support it, 
So think about that, how well do the Republicans represent their own constituents. But every elected Republican is going to say, nope, no way, not a chance, never happening, going to fight it tooth and nail. And you're going to have every blue dog Democrat is going to take a similar position. And every, you know, new type Democrat, not as bad as the blue dogs, but not actually left, they're going to say, oh, yeah, no, I'm not, I don't want to support that either. So given that that's the case, what we know for sure is we cannot have an elected Democratic president who will not fight on this issue and who does not actually believe on, in this position on this issue. Because what Amy Klobuchar is doing here is, to put it simply, is she's negotiating against herself. She's negotiating against the beliefs of her own base. Over 80% of the Democratic base supports Medicare for All. In fact, that number is probably higher now. I'm going based off of an old poll when I say that. 70% of the country supports Medicare for All. So if you're starting the negotiation like Obama did, by the way, where you're already conceding the world, well, then you're going to get no change at all. So uh, look at what Obama did. Obama's starting position in the debate was Amy Klobuchar's. Um, oh, uh, public option. There, so where do you go then from the public option? Where do you cave to? You know where you cave to? The Affordable Care Act. You go, okay, I want a public option. Oh, shit, we're not getting the support for that, and I don't know how to fight for it because I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. So, okay, let's do your idea, the individual mandate system, which keeps the private health insurance companies in control of the system and keeps them screwing us. By the way, there are real death panels. It's the private insurance companies. Um, so my idea is let's have a captive market. Let's force people to buy in the private insurance market and maybe expand Medicaid, and that's it. We're done. Well, guess what? That's an idea which polls around 50% popularity, which isn't great. And then also the right wing continues to attack it time and time again, and now they have an easy target to beat up on because you didn't do the policy that you were supposed to do and that you were supposed to fight for and the policy that's overwhelmingly popular and that would work. So you can't start by saying my position is for a half measure. Fuck no. No way. We need somebody who believes in Medicare for all and not only believes in it, but also will fight for a tooth and nail. I need a Democratic president who's going to know how to twist arms. I need a Democratic president who's going to call politicians who aren't on board into their office, into the Oval Office, and say to them very simply, hey, listen, I'm the president. My approval rating is through the roof. You know, your approval rating is nothing because Congress has like a 19% approval rating. People don't like you. They love me. So here's what's going to happen. If you don't vote for my Medicare for All bill, I will personally go to your state, to your district, campaign against you, fund and prop up a primary challenge against you, and that primary challenger will win, and your entire political career is gonzo, bitch. So either support my idea, which 70% of the country backs and over 80% of our party backs, either you support our idea or you lose. You lose your job, you lose your livelihood, you lose your future in politics, you lose your, your name recognition, you lose your uh, sense of, of being and security, you're done if you vote against this, son. Do you not understand it? Do you not understand that? Do you not understand that? So you have no choice. Vote for it or else. Is Amy Klobuchar going to do that? No, she just told you up front. I don't, I don't, uh, may, maybe sometime in the future, at some point when I'm not around and when I'm not going to fight for it, then we get Medicare for all. No, what you are is a gaslighter. That's what you are. You're a gaslighter. And in a weird way, Howard Schitt's gets more props because at least Howard Schitt's is like, no, I don't support it. Amy Klobuchar is like, yeah, maybe it's at some point in the distant future. So, no, you don't get it. You, they don't get it. These fucking 
centrists don't get it. We don't support what you're talking about. We think you're shitty corporatists who negotiate against yourselves and you get nothing done. By the way, they would say, oh, but they're the only ones who are being reasonable. Nonsense. Nonsense. In fact, the opposite is true. The actual lefties are the only people who get things accomplished. It was Bernie Sanders and Ro Khanna with their Stop Bezos bill that forced Jeff Bezos to raise the minimum wage for his workers to $15 an hour. They got 350,000 Americans a raise. That's what they did. They did it with Disney, too. Bernie Sanders did it with Disney. He he, um, backed the move against them, and then they said, okay, fine, you got us, no moss, we're going to raise our minimum wage to $15 an hour. They did it on Yemen. They worked together, Bernie Sanders, Ro Khanna. They even got some uh, more libertarian-leaning Republicans. And they fought tooth and nail, and they won. They got it through. Now we're going to no longer back a fucking genocide occurring in real time until Trump vetoes it, which might actually happen. But they're the ones who get the victories. Amy Klobuchar's got nothing to show for it. The only time these corporatists get anything done is right-wing shit. You want to see a bill that corporate Democrats um, have achieved in getting through? Wall Street deregulation. It just happened not that long ago. They teamed up with the Republicans to deregulate Wall Street more. That's not what this country needs, Amy. Unbelievable, man. So your time is done. You're not going to go anywhere. Your candidacy is embarrassing, and your name is Cloud Boot Jar. I got more on Clad Bujar. She's gonna do she's gonna talk about free college. In Amy Clad Bujar's CNN town hall, she gave the worst answer possible on the issue of free college. Take a look. Uh, thank you so much for taking my question, Senator. Um, so I graduated from college in 2017, uh, and I currently pay roughly the equivalent of my rent in student loans every month. Um, and, you know, I have friends that graduated six figures in debt. Here in New Hampshire, uh, students graduate on average with the largest, with the highest average student loan debt like in the nation. 36000 or something like it's that. It's absurd. Okay. Um, and so I'd like to ask you, uh, would you be willing to stand with my generation and end the student debt crisis by supporting free college for all? And would you include undocumented and formerly incarcerated people in that program? And if you could please just preface your answer with a clear yes or no, I would really appreciate okay. that. Thank you all so right. much. Okay. Let me answer you first of all. Um, I think we have to do everything to help our students afford college. Um, my idea is to make it easier to refinance. Um, to start with your two-year degrees, the community college is being free. That's something that President Obama um, was pushing. There's a reason I'll get to why I'm starting there instead of four-year. So I want to answer that question first for you. Um, and let you know that I also have student loans, and when I married my husband, he had tens of thousands of student loans to make you feel better, but I married him anyway, all right? Okay, so here's what we need to do. Uh, the first thing is we need to make it easier to afford college. And you need to do that by 
making it easier to refinance these loans by extend Pell Grants, so it includes more students. Those are simply grants, right? So if you extend those Pell Grants, that's going to make it even easier um, because right now it's for a limited number of students, and I think we should expand it uh, to more students. Um, I think that we should do as much as we can uh, with some of the um, other populations that you referred to. We've got to make it easier for people getting out of prison uh, to afford going to school, you name it. Uh, but the other thing I want to talk about here is something I know we're in a four-year degree school, a great school, but you also have in Manchester a two-year community college. And there's a lot of kids right now who are off the grid, right? They don't graduate from high school around the country or they end up um, maybe barely graduating from high school. They accumulate debt in a four-year college. Then they end up not being able to either finish that college or they end up not being able to get a job that pays for it. So right now there are a big number of jobs that require certifications, two-year degrees, um, everything from welding to uh, technology to robotics, something big here in New Hampshire. I know Mr. Kamen with the Segway uh, educated our whole country on robotics. And they require various degrees. So one of the things that I want to do is really have a big discussion in our country about what we do about kids that aren't graduating from high school, kids that don't get to the point of being at this great college, right, and how we get them into the certifications, the two-year degrees, and make sure that we're paying for that because our economy needs that, and then go from there. So thank you for your question. So he did, he did ask you yes or no. Would you support no. free college for all? I am not for free four-year college for all, no. Thank you. So let me ask you then this because um, and I wish if I was a, a magic genie and could give that to everyone and we could afford it, I would. I'm just trying to find a mix of incentives and make sure kids that are in need, that's why I talked about expanding Pell Grants, can go to college and be able to afford it yeah. and make sure that people that can't afford it um, are able to pay. Yeah. Wow, that was bad. If I was a magic genie and we could afford it, I would just do it, but we can't. That is not true. In fact, that's not even close to true. That's embarrassingly wrong. And what you need to understand is, young people, we think you're ridiculous, Cloud Boot Jar. But it's not just you. It's all the entire corporate centrist class. We think you're ridiculous people. You want to know why we think that? Because you are ridiculous people. You know, there's this thing called the Internet, which allows you to do this other thing called research. And so what I'm sure Griffin, the guy who asked the question, what I'm sure what he found out very quickly when he was researching this issue is, oh, wow, would you look at that? Here's an article that was in The Intercept that was from not that long ago when they just passed the increase in the military budget. The increase in the military budget was about $100 billion. Free college would cost about $60 billion dollars. So let me restate that and explain it to you in as simple a way as possible. Just the increase, just the increase in the military budget for one year, not the entire military budget, just the increase in the military budget for one year can more than pay for free college. It would almost pay for it two times over. So, again, when you say, if I was a magic genie, I'd be able to do it, but we're not, I'm not, so we can. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about, Amy Cloud Buchar. You don't know what you're talking about. 
you are saying that because of you're in a bubble. The bubble you're in is the D.C. elitist bubble. I know you fancy yourself not an elitist, but that's what you are. And when you're in that D.C. elitist bubble, yes, everybody around you is going to laugh at the idea of, free college! <laughs> Give people a chance in life! <laughs> I get it, I get it, but you're wrong, and you guys are wrong. You know, by the way, there's... I remember covering the story. I don't remember the exact countries, but there's like eight other developed countries or thereabouts that have free college. Slovenia managed to do free college. Now, I love how every politician in this country loves to suck our own dick and say, we're number one. We're the best in the world and everything. We're number one. But then you say, okay, can we do like maybe free college so we, maybe we actually can be number one? No, we can't do that. That's too hard. You were just talking about how we're number one. Now I'm asking for a basic thing that would just catch us up to Slovenia. And you're like, no, it's too hard. Oh, my God. By the way, we had the money for over a trillion-dollar tax cut to the top 1% corporations who desperately don't need it. Uh, we had money for $80 billion in corporate welfare every year to the big banks. We had money for a multi-trillion-dollar Wall Street bailout. We had uh, $7 trillion for the war in Iraq, $2 trillion for the war in Afghanistan. We have money for all this shit. But what we don't have money for is upgrading our infrastructure from a grade of D+. What we don't have money for is clean water in uh, Flint, Michigan. What we don't have money for is uh, free college. What we don't have money for is to wipe the student loan debt slate clean. So you've got to understand something. These people don't know what the fuck they're talking about. And it's embarrassing. And it's the saddest thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, and then, of course, I have to make fun of <laughs> when Griffin goes, and I love this because this is what I would do if I was in his position. He goes, all right, so my question is, do you support free college? Um, please, yes or no. Give me a yes or no before your answer. Like, I just want to know up front, yes or no. And what does she do? Not that. <laughs> like, please give me a yes or no. Anyway, so what I'm in favor of is I like Pell Grants being extended and refinancing for all. And, oh, my God. There's this great tweet from Internet Hippo from a few days ago on Twitter, hilarious account. And he said, like, the people have taken to the streets and they're demanding – um, what was it? What was the framing? Tax, tax advantage savings accounts, and they will not stop until they get it. <laughs> like that's the kind of policy that Cloud Boot Jar supports. Like, how about we means test this? Like, sh no, shut the fuck up. We're very simple. We're not asking for that much. The populist left, despite what you hear from idiots like Strawman Barbie, Tommy Lauren, who thinks oh, they want to make us vuvuzela. No, we, what we said very clearly is just the basics. Just give people actual equal opportunities. So the Scandinavian model, so give people health care, give people education, including higher education, give people daycare, give people a reasonable amount of paid vacation time, and we're good. That's it. A, a decent wage, you know, um, right to a union and $15 minimum wage. That's all people are asking for. The idea that, like, the far left, oh, you're so unreasonable. No, we're actually asking for very simple and straightforward things that just give people equal opportunity. But no, Amy Klobuchar's job is to go out there and gaslight for the establishment, and that's what she's doing, even though she thinks she's like a rogue truth-teller. Hilarious how they invert reality. The actual rogue truth-teller is Bernie Sanders, okay? Amy Klobuchar is the defender of the establishment. She's the gatekeeper. Hey, you can only go as far left as I go, and that's it. Even though I'm a totally pro-status quo and pro-establishment, and I lie to you about things we can't afford. So, embarrassing. Klobuchar is embarrassing. And um, her candidacy is going to, I mean, it's just going to, she's going to get like 1% or 2%. It's going to be that bad. And 
I will laugh every step of the way, and I will particularly laugh at the fact that her name is Cloud Boot Jar. Okay, let me do one more Cloud Boot Jar, and then we will take a break. And when we come back from the break, it'll be Tucker Carlson. Amy Cloudboot Jar was asked about foreign policy in her town hall, and um, she is going to drop some mean platitudes on us. Take a look. Senator, do you think our current administration's relationship with our allies has been damaged? If so, with whom and how? Also, what do you consider the most important and urgent foreign affair issues, and what's your plan to address them? Thank you. Thank you. Um, it has certainly been damaged. You think of the work of diplomacy and all of that work that President Obama did and Secretary Clinton, Secretary Kerry. Um, that's reaching out to our allies. And I believe that we must stand tall uh, as a beacon of democracy, but I also believe that we must stand with our allies. So that's my number one focus. Secondly, we have to invest in diplomacy. I remember it was Secretary Mattis who unfortunately left the Trump administration after the president um, basically made that decision on removing the troops from Syria without even notifying our allies, without notifying his own people. Well, Secretary Mattis once said that if you don't invest in foreign aid and you don't invest in diplomacy, then he just has to buy more bullets, right? And so that has got, we've got to look at it as just not one side or the other, but how we deal with the world as a whole. The other thing I'd mention is just modernizing our military. I took on the issue of protecting our elections from after what we saw happen in the last election with Russia. And I would actually put this right up there. When, we, when I talk to our military, a lot of, in addition to, of course, the Mideast and um, making sure that Iran, and I disagreed with the decision about getting out of that nuclear agreement. I think that would have been an example of standing with our allies in Europe um, and pushing Iran to make sure that they never have a nuclear weapon. Well, when you look at the other issue, it is cyber. And that is the next arena for warfare. We're already seeing it right now. And just to give you an example, the bill that I had to upgrade our election equipment cost literally a bipartisan bill 3% of one aircraft carrier. So working with our allies, investing in diplomacy, modernizing our military, and then finally taking on those big challenges that are in front of us. And I would list them as what we've already mentioned, the Mideast, um, the challenge that we have with climate change, which is driving so many issues. It is not just out there on its own. It's driving migration from places in Africa um, and refugees because of the change in our climate. Um, and then, of course, dealing uh, with the nuclear threat that we have with North Korea, um, as well as what we're seeing with Russia's continuing pushing at our country. And no, I don't think the answer is to stand with Vladimir Putin and say, I agree with everything he says, and oh, hey, I disagree with my own intelligence people. Uh, the answer is to stand with strength and stand with our allies. Yeah, so almost the worst possible answer you can give, the reason why it's not 
literally the worst possible answer is uh, at least she said, oh, I would have stayed in the Iran deal, and I think we should have stayed in the Iran deal. Okay, so credit for that one part. Now it's time to rip this thing to shreds because this got under my skin like you wouldn't believe. And you might be thinking, why? That seems, seems like banal, normal stuff. No. Listen, we live in an era right now where Donald Trump and his merry band of neocon idiots and war criminals, John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, Elliot Abrams, they are literally plotting two or three coups at the same time. Venezuela, Iran, which they're trying to make that economy implode so there's regime change, massive destabilization effort. Um, and now even Nicaragua, you had uh, John Bolton tweeting about that the other day. So they're in the process of doing regime change on multiple fronts. And this is on top of the eight countries that we're currently bombing, where we have drone warfare, by the way, there's a shadow war going on in Africa right now. So at a time when, honestly, some of the most dangerous characters in the world, like uh, John Bolton and Mike Pompeo, when they're in control, you were asked about foreign policy, and you didn't mention a single war we should stop? We've been in Afghanistan for 17 fucking years. We've been in Iraq since 2003. No definition of victory, no attempt to even bother to give, to cover it in the news anymore. In Syria, she went after Trump, to, oh my God, he said he'd get out of Syria without telling anybody. <laughs> no, the real line of attack against Trump on Syria is that he said he would get out. He hasn't gotten out, we're still there. He just went, yeah, we're going to get out, and then he didn't get out. That's the real problem, but instead of arguing from a left-wing position, what she's doing is she's attacking him from the right. When she bothers to attack them at all, other times it's just platitudes. I think we should stand with our allies. What does that mean? What does that mean? You're not saying anything. We should stand with our allies. That's like saying, that's the equivalent of saying, I have friends and I like them. Okay. What the fuck does that have to do with any serious political issue? I'll tell you what it means. It means we're going to stand with Saudi Arabia, we're going to stand with Israel, and we're going to stand with Europe against the aggression of Russia um, against NATO. That's what that means. So double down on our support of some, some of our friends who are good friends, but other friends who are horrific regimes like Saudi Arabia and Israel. That's what that means. Okay, Amy, the fact that you think spewing banal platitudes has had to be taken seriously on foreign policy is hilarious. There's an anger in this country right now, a populist rage in this country, and it's totally merited. And we're angry because as we're wasting trillions of dollars on unnecessary, offensive, illegal foreign wars, our country's falling apart. With our infrastructure getting a grade of D+, with Flint, Michigan, and other places not having clean water. And your contribution to a foreign policy discussion is stand with our allies, invest in diplomacy. You want to give specifics instead of fucking cliches, but invest in diplomacy. What does that mean? Tell me what you're saying. Uh, Trump didn't tell anybody he was going to pull out of Syria. Oh, how could he stop an illegal war without letting everybody know he was going to stop an illegal war first? And he didn't even stop it, so stop saying that. You're giving him credit for being non-interventionist when he's actually not that. And then, of course, you Russia. Oh, oh. Um, cyber. By the way, you know what that means when she says cyber? It means let's give the NSA more power to control the Internet. I'm not kidding. That's not a straw man, because you go, and I did this when I was prepping and reading through um, Cloud Boot Jar's record. She is huge on the intelligence agencies. Like, for example, she supported the Patriot Act, and every subsequent vote after the original Patriot Act, 
where you give the NSA more power, she supported it. So she's huge on giving the NSA and the CIA and all these intelligence agencies more power. And that's what she means when she says, my foreign policy involves increasing cyber. And then she touches on North Korea. Of all of the things Trump has done, North Korea might be the best. You want to know why? Because he's done nothing. He's taken a step back. He's letting uh, President Moon in South Korea try to make peace with North Korea. And then he takes the credit when they do it. Now, him taking the credit is hilariously dumb because President Moon is doing all the work. But I'll take it because he's not escalating. He's not trying to go to war. But guess what the Democrats have done in response to this? The Democrats have argued against Trump removing U.S. troops from certain places in South Korea. So yet again, they think in order to be serious, we have to resist from the right and be more hawkish and more pro-neocon. Ah! Ah! So let's review. Amy uh, Klabuchar is talking about foreign policy. She never once mentions, let's get out of Iraq, never once mentions, let's get out of Afghanistan, never once mentions, let's stop massacring civilians with our drone strikes, let's stop bombing uh, eight different countries, never once um, mentions any serious issue except Iran, and she doubles down on standing with our allies, which basically means let's keep propping up Saudi Arabia and Israel. <clears throat> Hard pass. Hard pass. Amy Klabuchar is the type of person who's saying what her strategists tell her to say and what she thinks is most likely to get her elected. So in other words, she's not giving like, hey, this is what I really think on these issues and let's talk about it and let's be serious. She's taking the steps that she thinks she has to take in order to get elected. What she's going to find out very quickly is you horrendously misread the times and your strategists don't know what the fuck they're doing and neither do you, Cloud Boot Jar. All right, it's break time, y'all. When we come back, Tucker Carlson and Rutger Bregman go at it on his show. There's a lot to say about that. And then um, later on, we have the report about Trump trying to give the Saudi Arabian government nuclear weapons or nuclear power. That should be an interesting one to cover. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
right, here's a segment many of you have been waiting for. I have uh, maybe a little bit of a contrarian opinion on this, but we'll find out when this hits YouTube. But anywho, here we go. Let me set this up. Tucker Carlson had Rutger Bregman on his show. So this guy, Rutger Bregman, he, um, he was one of the people who went to Davos, which is the gathering of, like, elitists where they all sniff each other's farts and talk about how great they are and how they're going to save the world. Um, he went there, and he's an academic, and he was basically, like, lecturing them on taxes and saying, hey, listen, during the golden age of economic expansion in the U.S., they had a top marginal tax rate of 70%, um, and uh, 70 to 90%, actually. And even when you account for the loopholes and deductions, it was still like 43%, so it's much higher than it is now. And uh, it, didn't, it, it didn't lead to economic stagnation. There was massive economic growth. Also, unions were incredibly strong, so you had the strongest middle class you've ever had in U.S. history. And he basically just schooled them on left economic policy. And it was glorious to see. There were actually two separate occasions of academics schooling the panels of elitists on, um, you know, various left-wing ideas. And I think we covered the other one. I don't think we covered the one that Rutger Bregman did. There was another instance of another academic who kind of schooled them on these similar issues. Well, anyway, Rutger Bregman was invited onto Tucker Carlson's show to talk about this. And they start out getting along actually pretty well. But then by the end of it, Rucker says some things that pisses off Tucker Carlson, and Tucker melts down and yells at him, and, and this never made it to air. We're watching like a cell phone video from when it was recorded on Rucker Bregman's uh, side of the equation. So let's take a look, and then we'll come back and talk about it. That's one of the great moments, maybe the great moment in Davos history. Rucker Bregman is the author of Utopia for Realists, and he joins us now. Mr. Bregman, I, I, I can't stop laughing just thinking of that. And part of it makes me wonder, are you the first person ever to note that people are flying private to talk about global warming and that none of them mention tax avoidance? Has anyone ever said that before at Davos that you know of? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not an expert on Davos history, but it is a bit hypocritical, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, yes. Yes, it is. I, and, and others have noted that. We've noted it on this show. We've just never gone to Davos and said it out loud as you did. So if I was wearing a hat, I would take it off to you. What was the, what response did you get? Uh, I mean, they were not very happy with me. But I'm just, just a, I think, a, a, a random Dutch historian who's basically saying whatever on, around the globe is thinking. You know, the vast majority of Americans for years and years now, according to the polls, uh, including Fox News viewers and including Republicans, are in favor of higher taxes on the rich, you know, higher inheritance taxes, higher top marginal tax rates, uh, higher wealth taxes. It's all really mainstream. But no one's saying that at the post, just as no one's saying it on Fox News, right? And I think the, the, the explanation for that is quite simple, is that most of the people in Davos, but also here on this channel, have been bought by the billionaire class. You know, you're not meant to say these things. So I just went there and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to say it, just as I'm saying it right here on this channel. Well, what was interesting, I thought, about what you said was you noted something. I mean, many people have called for higher taxes, but very few Well, not on this channel, is it? I mean, almost all the pundits on this channel for years have been against higher taxes, right? Even though the, the vast majority of Americans is in Maybe. favor of it. I mean, I, would, I, I, don't, I don't know 
hours of foxing you've watched, but I'm interested in what you said mm-hmm. about tax avoidance. So yeah. you, just because someone faces a specific tax rate does not mean that person pays that mm-hmm. tax rate at all. I don't think Netflix, for example, pays any taxes last year mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. So what would you do specifically to make certain that this class of people pays what they're supposed to pay? Well, it's about multiple things. So we should really crack down on tax paradises and on tax avoidance. That's a major issue. But the thing is, I mean, you guys have brought into power a president that doesn't even want to show his own tax return. Uh, I mean, who knows how many billions he has hidden in the Cayman Islands or in Bermuda. Um, so I think the issue really is, is, is one of corruption and of people being bribed and of not being, you know, not talking about the real issues. Uh, what the family, you know, what the murders basically want you to do is to scapegoat immigrants instead of talking about tax avoidance. So I'm, I'm glad you're now finally raising the issue, but that's what's been, been happening for the past couple of years. Uh-huh. And I'm taking, I'm taking orders from the Murdochs, is that what you're saying? No, I mean, it doesn't work that directly, but I mean, you've been part of the Cato Institute, right? You're, you've been a senior fellow there for years. You've been, you've been taking their dirty money. They're funded by coke billionaires, you know? Wait, why don't you tell me how it does work? Well, it works by you taking their dirty money. It's as easy as that. I mean, you are a millionaire funded by billionaires. That's what you are. And I'm glad you now finally joined the bandwagon, you know, of people like Bernie Sanders and AOC. But you're not you're not part of the solution, uh, Mr. Mr. Carlson. You're part of the problem, actually. AOC, but can I just say? It's true, right? It's true, right? That all the all the anchors. All the anchors on Fox, (laughs) they're all millionaires. How is this possible? Well, it's very easy. You're just not talking about certain things. It doesn't even, Fox doesn't play where you are. It doesn't play where you are. (laughs) Well, have you heard of the internet? (laughs) I can watch things whatever I want, you know. I have, actually. I, I, I can't say I'm a great fan of your show, but I do my homework when you invite me on your show. So, I mean, you're probably not going to air this, uh, but I went to Davos to speak truth to power, and I'm doing exactly the same thing right now. You might not like it, but you're a millionaire funded by billionaires, and that's the reason why you're not talking about these issues. But I am talking about these issues. Yeah, only now. Come on, you jumped the bandwagon. You're all like, oh, I'm against the globalist elite, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's not very convincing, to be to honest. You, why don't you go f*** yourself, you tiny brain, and I hope this gets picked up, because you're a moron. I tried to give you a hearing, but you were too annoying for me. Uh, you can't handle the criticism, can you? So, perhaps surprisingly, I have mixed feelings about this. I know probably most of you expected me to be 100% on uh, Rutger Bregman's side here. But I do have uh, some mixed feelings. So first and foremost, um, let's just get this out of the way. On the substance of taxes and populism and on even scapegoating, I think Rutger Bregman is 100% spot on where um, he's talking about how, yes, you have global elites and, yes, they're dodging taxes and, you know, the real solution is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders and, and left-wing populists. And then he talks about how there's a little bit of a bait-and-switch happening with the right-wing populists, 
where the right-wing populists talk about some of these economic issues, but then it's quickly like, okay, and that's why we got to blame the immigrants, and that's why we have to have really harsh immigration laws, and that's why if you're not doing well economically and you're a white working-class family, blame people who have uh, less money and no power who are just trying to make a better life, a life for themselves, for themselves, and um, that's where you should direct your ire. And so I think he's right about that dynamic. Now, the reason why I have mixed feelings is, and I noticed this recently too, where Ro Khanna tweeted something. It was, uh, I guess Tucker Carlson had written something specifically on foreign policy where he's against like the, the regime change happening. And it, it, I guess Ro Khanna tweeted something that was kind of like a, like a hat tip to Tucker Carlson. Like, okay, here, good point on the uh, interventionist wars. And then Ro Khanna got just a fucking litany of hate. Uh, and people were like, hey, he's a white supremacist, and he's fucking a bigot and a xenophobe, and why would you, um, why would you give him credibility? And I, I was watching the fallout from that, and I was actually getting really pissed off because I got news for all those people who were in Ro Khanna's mentions. You do know that the same week that you're attacking him for a fucking tweet, he's stopping a genocide, literally. Like, it was Ro Khanna who led the charge in the House to get us to stop Saudi support of a literal genocide. Um, Bernie Sanders did this in the Senate. You know who Bernie Sanders worked with? Mike Lee. You know who Mike Lee is? A vicious far-right winger. Now, there happens to be a few points of connection with the left, one of them being on foreign policy. Mike Lee's position wasn't as much, oh, I'm so concerned about the poor babies in Yemen. He was coming to this position from, I believe in the Constitution, and, it's the, and Congress has to declare war. So we didn't declare war in Yemen, so we're going to assert our, our congressional authority and say the president doesn't have the authority to do this. So he was coming from more of a legal perspective than he was a humanitarian perspective, but either way, he arrived at the proper position. I want to incentivize people arriving at the, po- at the right position in every way I can. So when you bring up other issues, when somebody actually agrees with you on a different issue, what you're doing is you're telling them, you have to agree with me on everything or fuck you. Now, that doesn't take away from how horrendous Mike Lee is on basically 90% of uh, political issues. And that doesn't take away from how horrendous uh, Tucker Carlson is on immigration-related issues. Um, But it does mean that if you have this philosophy of even when somebody who's from a different school of thought agrees with me, fuck them, well, then you literally get nothing done ever. Bernie Sanders and Ron Paul used to work together all the time. They worked together on drug policy. They worked together on foreign policy. So here's the main point. I am 100% for working with other people as long as the point of agreement is on left priorities. It wasn't like Bernie Sanders was working with Ron Paul because Ron Paul is in favor of abolishing the FDA, and Bernie's like, you know what? I think that's a good idea. Let's abolish the FDA. Because then I'd be like, oh, open the gates of hell and go after Bernie too, harshly, and go after Ron Paul, go after both of them. But Bernie was working with Ron Paul on issues of, hey, maybe we shouldn't jail people for smoking relatively benign substances. Hey, maybe we should not do offensive regime change wars, and we should get out of Iraq. So, in other words, what I would say to to Rutger Bregman is, 
take yes for an answer. So this is an issue where Tucker's actually agreeing with you. Now, I do find it funny when he's like, um, he says to him, you're not talking about these issues. Rutger says that to Tucker. He's like, we're literally doing it right now. Like, that's why I invited you on the show to talk about this issue. So I, I I don't like that oftentimes when somebody on the left is given yes for an answer, they're like, ah, but you're bad on all these other things. Yeah, that's right. So call them out on those other things, but take yes for an answer on the issue where they agree with you. Now, having said all that, the final caveat, and it's an important one, is this. Tucker is a little bit of a fraud because even though his rhetoric on um, economic populism is pretty solid, um, the reality is he supports Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is the ultimate fake populist. So it's hard to conclude that Tucker also isn't a fake populist. Because, yes, it's good that you're having this guy on to talk about, you know, the fucking tax dodgers at uh, Davos. But the reality of the situation is Donald Trump's tax bill super serving that same tax avoidance crowd. And you were cheering on Donald Trump. It's the same reason why I say Steve Bannon is a fake populist. Steve Bannon did this interview with Bill Maher where he was like, I was the one pushing behind the scenes to make it so that we raise taxes on the top 1% in his tax bill. But then Trump did not raise taxes on the top 1% in that tax bill. In fact, they cut it massively, and you still supported the tax bill. So how, why, why should I take you seriously? That's like me saying, oh, I support Medicare for all, and then somebody proposes a bill that they call it Medicare for all, but then they do the exact opposite, and they're like, no, actually, we're not covering everybody, and in fact, we're taking health care away from people. And I'm like, oh, I still support that. Well, then I'm not supporting Medicare for all. I mean, that's what Steve Bannon did. Oh, I'm a populist on economic issues, but yes, I ended up supporting the bill where 83% of the tax cuts over a 10-year period went to the top 1%. I got news for you, pal. You're not an economic populist, regardless of what your rhetoric says. Now, in the case of Tucker Carlson, again, maybe you guys can point me to a video where he specifically goes after Trump for the tax bill, and, and he says, I don't support this. But my understanding is that he does support it, and he does support Trump. So if you support Trump, you're also kind of a fake populist. Again, I'm happy that he's having this guy on to talk about these issues, um, but ultimately, uh, Tucker kind of uses this to loop people in to supporting standard Republican politicians, and those standard Republican politicians are not remotely populist. So in many ways, he's a fake populist, and he's a fraud on these issues, even though his rhetoric is actually way more, like the thing that makes Tucker Carlson more clever than the other right-wing hosts is that the other right-wing hosts will wear it on their sleeve and be like, like Ben Shapiro, for example, oh my God, um, we need to uh, deregulate more. We need to not worry about outsourcing. You know, I mean, this is stuff that he really believes. The, the standard trickle-down economics pro-deregulation Kool-Aid that's pushed by George W. Bush and, and Ted Cruz and all these clowns, that's Ben Shapiro's argument, and he's upfront about that, and upfront almost about being an elitist and not a populist. Um, whereas Tucker talks a decent game on some economically populist issues, but he doesn't really follow through in terms of, I mean, if you really believed in the harsh rhetoric against the rich and you really believed in economic populism, you'd be supporting Bernie Sanders now, wouldn't you, Tucker? But he doesn't do it. So it's almost like he either doesn't believe in the economic stuff or the immigration stuff overrides his belief on the economic stuff, in which case, yes, it's all, all systems go for going after him because I don't think he's right on the, that econo- on the, uh, the immigration stuff. I think he's got... Um, 
pretty draconian and primitive views, if you ask me, and pretty tribalist views, if you ask me. So I do, uh, the reason I have mixed feelings is I feel like Rutger Bregman could have taken yes for an answer on the economic rhetoric, on the economically populist rhetoric that Tucker was seemingly agreeing with him on, but then in the process of taking yes for an answer, you can also hit him with a couple jabs and a couple gut shots and be like, hey, dog, listen, the classic trick from the right is to use fake populism and to rope people in with that rhetoric and then turn around and scapegoat and blame immigrants, which he did kind of do. But I felt like he could have done it in a way where it didn't lead to a total meltdown of, of Tucker and yelling at him. Like, it seemed like Walter, um, Walter, am I fucking up his name? Rutger Bregman was trying to get kicked off the show. It did strike me like that. Many of you will disagree with that, but that's what it looked like to me. Like, he was trying to get kicked off the show, and I thought that was weird. Take it, listen, I've been on Fox News, so I could speak from a particular, um, you know, perspective here that I don't think many people have. And my approach in these situations is always to co-opt my opponent's ideology against them. So if you go back and you watch my Fox News interviews, you'll see exactly how I go about doing that, okay? Where I'm always bringing up, yes, but the poll show, the Republican voters agree with me on this, and you use that. Uh, Yes, you know, hey, when Donald Trump spoke about NAFTA, I wish he followed through on that. Donald Trump was right on NAFTA. So you have to frame it from the position of, hey, listen, I'm framing this from your ideology, and here's why you need to support left-wing ideas. And that's how, it's almost like, to use a crass example here, but I think it makes sense. It's like for the, the baby, when you put the pill into the applesauce, and they eat the applesauce, and they think they just ate applesauce, but they actually just had medicine, too. They don't even realize it. Oh, shit, all of a sudden, now they're in favor of unions, and they're in favor of stopping outsourcing, and they're in favor, like, all that stuff. So, um I think he was trying to get kicked off, and that's why I think I have mixed feelings on this. I feel like he could have gotten his point across in a way that would have convinced more people in the audience. Because now the reaction from Tucker's fans are going to be, fuck this guy Rutger and fuck everything he's about. Whereas he could have done it in a way where he gets his point across and doesn't compromise his values at all. And people go, oh, yeah, he's right about that now, isn't he? And that would, have been, that would have been better, in my opinion. But, you know, I guess I could see both sides of this, and I guess I, guess I have a nuanced take on it. Uh, um, my guess is most of you guys are going to side 100% with Rutger, but I'm curious to see what you do say. All right, next. The former FBI director is spilling the beans on Donald Trump, and he's admitting something that I think is insanely important, but this has been largely ignored. Take a look. The president says to the briefer that he wants to have a war with Venezuela, and this is in 2017. 
Yeah, the, pres the president's remarks in the room were along the lines of, I don't understand why we're not looking at Venezuela. Why are we not at war with Venezuela? They have all the oil, and they're right on our back door. So I can't, I can't put myself in the president's mind. I can't say how, you know, clearly crystallized, you know, how clearly his intent had crystallized. But these were comments that caused us uh, deep concern. They were incredibly troubling. Okay, so let me just say up front, I don't believe him about, oh, we were so concerned about him saying this. All the intelligence agencies have always been pro-regime change, and they've orchestrated regime change. So for him to be like, oh, how could you? No, you guys were all like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> like, that's, what I, that's the part that I don't believe. The part I do believe is that Donald Trump said that, and he meant it. So, listen, I mean, is this is a story, but remember, John Bolton, not that long ago, went on Fox Business Network, where you can be a little too honest, because it's mostly one percenters watching you, and he's speaking to his own class interests, and he said, yeah, listen, there's the biggest oil reserves in the world in Venezuela, and um, we've been working with our companies, and we're trying to, you know, get, get involved here. So in other words, yeah, we're going to go take the oil, and that's the whole point, and we're working with U.S. companies in the process of doing this. So they're saying it's about the oil. Now you have the FBI director saying, yes, in meetings in 2017, Trump said, why don't we just go to Venezuela? They're in our backyard. We can take their oil, and that's that. This is how they really think. This is what they really believe. And even with all of this being out there, Democrats are not talking about this clip that I just showed you here. And many people are still pretending like, oh, no, it's for humanitarian reasons. They're telling you it's not for humanitarian reasons, you dipshits. We just showed you the clip earlier today about um, Tulsi Gabbard was on The View, and they framed the question about Venezuela like, oh, don't we need to go help those people? They're not trying to help those people. How fucking naive are you? So I, want, I don't want this clip to be a long clip because I just want to – make the point in as clear and simple a way as possible. It's not about helping people. It's about jacking natural resources, and it's about geopolitical domination, control, and power. So now you know, so don't ever bring up the, oh, what about the civilians we have to help? You want to help civilians? Stop backing 73% of the world's dictatorships. Stop arming Israel. Stop arming uh, Saudi Arabia. Stop the bad we do. That's how you stop bad things from happening to civilians. You don't go topple countries that are not our allies for cynical reasons. All right, we're going back to Daddy Bernie, y'all. And he is going to talk about Howard Schitt's. So in his launch uh, interview here, Bernie was asked about Howard Schitt's candidacy, and his response is great. So, Senator Sanders, you're going to run for president. I am going to run for president. That's correct. What's going to be different this time? We're going to win. Uh, we are going to also launch what I think is unprecedented. Oh, I fucked up. Uh, in Wrong one. Here it is. Boom, shakalaka, bitch. Let me ask you about a theory that Howard Schultz, Howard Schultz has now said he would not run as an independent if the Democrats moderate, uh, nominate oh, a moderate. isn't that nice. But you raise a good thing. 
Why is Howard Schultz on every television station in this country? Why are you quoting Howard Schultz? Because he's a billionaire, right? There are a lot of people I know personally who work hard for a living and make forty, fifty thousand dollars a year who know a lot more about politics than in all due respect does Mr. Schultz. But because we have a corrupt political system, anybody who is a billionaire who can throw a lot of TV ads on television suddenly becomes very, very credible. So with Mr. Schultz, what is he blackmailing the Democratic Party? If you don't nominate Bernie Sanders, he's not going to run? Well, I don't think we should succumb to that kind of blackmail. The other reason is that he represents an argument that some people make, which is if you're worried about Donald Trump, the Democratic Party to win voters in various parts of the country needs to pick somebody who is not so radical. That's also what his theory is. Well, I think his deeper theory is, hey, I'm a billionaire, leave me alone, and uh, let me make as much money as I can without paying my fair share of taxes. And let me continue to have undue political fluids, which you are quoting me. All right, here is a billionaire. No one's ever heard of this guy. Well, not many people have. He's a billionaire. He's thinking of running for president. Suddenly, he's a very famous guy. That's, that is a problem with our political system. I love how he just says the shit that we all want to say. He just says it. <laughs> you don't get that from other politicians. Where uh, Howard Schultz says, oh, you're fucking quoting Howard Schultz, that dipshit? Like, that's his reaction. He's like, that guy? The only reason he's taken seriously is because he's a billionaire. That is so true. Richard Ojeda announced his presidential campaign, I think he was first, or one of the first. He got next to no coverage. Howard Schultz hasn't even officially announced yet. He's just on a couple teasers. I might run. Nobody was asking for this. But every mainstream media network, Howard Schultz, oh I don't know what that was. I just took my pompous guy impersonation and took it to the next level, where it was inaudible. Howard Sounds more like a velociraptor. <laughs> The only reason he's taken seriously and the only reason he's covered endlessly, yes, is because he's a billionaire. So let's, uh, Tulsi Gabbard has gotten less coverage, and she's officially running, and she's a congresswoman. So let's be serious about this. He got a fucking town hall on CNN, bro, a town hall. Where he, but you know what? It's good. The more he talks, the worse he does in the polls. So go ahead, Howard Schitt's. Keep shitting because that's what's happening. You're, you're such a disaster. His whole campaign is, here's what I'm against. He's not even telling you what he's for. Uh, you know, we definitely can't have free college. Definitely can't have Medicare for all. Vote for me. <laughs> what? No? Um, what, I, what I wish Bernie brought up, though, and, I, you know, it, it's in the moment. You didn't think of it on the spot. But what I wish Bernie brought up is a direct response to Howard Schultz's argument. Because Howard Schultz's argument is, bro, if you run a far lefty, there's no way the Democrats win. Okay, the response to that is, the Democrats have been running corporatists and losing. If only we had an experiment where, like, a corporate centrist ran against Donald Trump. 2016, Hillary Clinton. Insane name recognition, too, along with being a corporate centrist. And she lost. So your idea has already been disproven. But furthermore, Bernie Sanders in the 2016 primary destroyed in the same places that Howard Schultz is concerned trolling about Democrats will lose if they go far left there. So take West Virginia, one of the most conservative uh, states in the nation. Bernie won every 
single county in West Virginia in the 2016 primary. Did you know Bernie won in the Democratic primary among self-described conservative Democrats? That's a fact that blows people's minds because their reaction is, and it makes sense. People say, but hold on, Hillary Clinton is literally more conservative than Bernie. That makes no sense. That's right, it makes no sense. But it turns out the American people don't know labels. So they just hear this guy talk and they go, I don't know, I like him. He seems like he's looking out for me. And so it doesn't matter. He wins conservative Democrats, he wins the left, he holds independence, and he crushes among young people. He's the ideal candidate. <laughs> so his concern trolling is empirically wrong. And it's kind of hilarious that the media still runs with it as if it's, it's reasonable because you can do your job and fact check it. So I wish Bernie brought that up because he could also bring up that he beat Trump in every single poll by an average of like 10 or 11 points, whereas Hillary Clinton was up by an average of like two or three points. So you can show these people through data and they still dismiss it, which is amazing. Um, But imagine a guy like Howard Schitt's versus Donald Trump. Donald Trump would almost certainly win if if Howard Schitt's was running as a Democrat and he was against Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump would almost certainly win in that race. But Bernie versus Trump, landslidington, say it with me. All right, now Fox and Friends is going to respond to Bernie Sanders' candidacy. And you're about to see how they have nothing on them. So Fox and Friends responded to Bernie Sanders announcing that he's running for president. And they did this in the most Fox Newsy way imaginable. Take a look. There are many other things that make Bernie, made Bernie in 2016, stand out. Watch this. Tuition free. Three months paid family and medical leave. A living wage. 15 bucks an hour. Healthcare is a right of all people, not a privilege. Radical ideas are now mainstream ideas because of your support. Uh, Medicare for all, the single-payer system, a free college, uh, is anti-Israel uh, <laughs> uh, uh, policy. That was basically his foreign policy. Uh, it won him New Hampshire. It almost took Iowa. It scared the heck out of Hillary Clinton. And then all of a sudden, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, working behind the scenes, cut his knees out, uh, along with the superdelegates that were acquired before Bernie Sanders, who was actually in. Well, if you vote for him, it's a very liberal agenda. You, ha- you heard what, what he's for. You know what he's for. 2016 was a different race than 2020. It looks like the country, more and more people are supporting the socialist agenda. And that's what you get with him. When we asked the voters, and we did a poll last week, when the voters were asked, who do you want? Joe Biden was number one, and Bernie Sanders was number two. So far, Joe Biden hasn't gotten in the race, so it looks like uh, Joe B- I mean, uh, Bernie Sanders would do really well. Biden and uh, Bernie, it uh, sounds like, will be in it. They, they are the two candidates on the Democratic side with the best uh, name recognition. But, you know, four years later, things have really changed. In 2016, Bernie Sanders was a real contrast to Hillary Clinton. And now when you look at the things that he ran on four years ago, that's what everybody's running on, it seems like. Uh, when it comes to Medicare for All, you've got Harris, Gillibrand, Booker, Warren, Klobuchar, they're all for that. 
And then Amy Klobuchar, uh, who uh, yesterday said she's not for uh, free, free college for everybody. She said she wants the first two paid for, like a community college. Well, she said uh, that she did support Bernie on his $15 per uh, hour minimum wage. So she is in unison with, the, with uh, Bernie on that, just not the free college business. But what about the timing? The timing of a socialist declaring for president one day after the President of the United States condemned socialism in Miami, and we look at Venezuela as a case in point of what could happen to America with all our natural resources, with all our history, like Venezuela, much, much richer than Venezuela, and all their oil resources, they have gone into the toilet as a country. They can't even stock their shelves with, the, with food that would be too expensive to buy anyway because of inflation. They have... No, 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 nothing on Bernie. Nothing. They're going to use like the same three talking points over and over and over and over. And it's, it's embarrassing, man. I mean, come up with some slightly creative lines of attack, won't you? Jesus Christ. So first of all, the beginning part of the clip is actually pretty good in that they're kind of accurately describing a bunch of stuff. Like they, they go through his... Um, his agenda, free college, paid family leave, $15 an hour, Medicare for all, and then he's like, uh, he has anti-Israel foreign policy. Mildly, to, you know, at best, but thank you for doing a campaign ad for Bernie to start off that segment. I really appreciate it. Because all those things they went through, free college, paid family leave, $15 an hour, Medicare for all, all those poll overwhelmingly popular among the country, but even most of them, majority of Republican voters too. So you, they play these things as if it's like a gotcha that's only a gotcha in, like, the top 1% ultra-far-right circles. That's it. That's it. But among a lot of their viewers, they're going to be watching that like, oh, stupid Bernie. <laughs> I, I like the, the way a lot of that sounds. <laughs> that's going to be the reaction. And then, li listen, if that, that's going to be the go-to argument is, <laughs> we're Venezuela. Oh, and the crazy thing is, even when you directly respond to that, they will still go on to repeat the same talking point as if you didn't respond to it. It's almost like shockingly stupid. Tommy Lauren did this the other day on Twitter, and I responded to it. And she's going to continue to make the same point, even though I responded to it and slapped down her dumbass point. So, I mean, obviously the reaction to this is, Bernie never said that. Bernie supports the Scandinavian model. Look at Denmark or Sweden, for a better example. And those places kick our ass in every relevant study uh, on every relevant topic. So you keep bringing that up, we'll keep bringing up Scandinavia, and we'll also keep bringing up our policy specifics, Medicare for all, free college, living wage, um, and the wars, so on and so forth, and people will agree with us, and they won't agree with you. And imagine on the debate stage Donald Trump trying to take down Bernie Sanders, and that's the thing he can't help but keep going back to, like Marco Rubio when he turned into the Rubio bot and was a broken record. Trump will be like, ah, he's a socialist, and he wants Venezuela. It's unbelievably tremendously sad, believe me. And Bernie just fucking, that's child's play to Bernie. He'll slap that shit out the way like it's nothing, like Dikembe Mutombo in his prime. Get that shit out of here, bitch. And he'll be like, let me explain it to you. I'm talking about the Scandinavian model. Over there, the middle class uh, is stronger. People self-report being significantly happier. They have paid time off by law. Uh, their health care system is better. They cover everybody at half the price, and they have better health outcomes. What about this do you not like, Mr. President? It's like Venezuela. It's like Venezuela. Dude, 
Bernie might destroy this election in legendary fashion. I can't wait to watch this unfold and look at the, you know, the smug ass looks on the face of the far right when they see this guy who represents everything they despise, just bulldozing everything in his path on his way to victory. Okay, let me take a final break real quick. When we come back, we're going to talk about Saudi Arabia, terrifying story for that, and Russia. Wait until you hear the new escalation that will scare the shit out of you. Stay right there.
be back, bitch. Let's take this bad boy home. Um, <clears throat> Alright, be prepared to be scared for these next stories. I got uh, two, one, two stories that will terrify you, and then one that you're going to get a kick out of because of how um, advanced some of these propaganda arguments are getting. Okay. Saudi Arabia. Let's do it. So I have an absolutely stunning, blah, 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 don't know how to talk. I have an amazing story to share with you. Um, This is about... Saudi Arabia and the U.S. and our unholy alliance and what it's leading to. Take a look. An interim report from the staff of the U.S. House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform shows evidence that members of the Trump transition team and administration attempted to push through a plan from a consortium advised by former National Security Advisor General Michael Flynn to sell nuclear technology to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. The plan would have led to the construction of 40 nuclear power plants and facilities to enrich uranium fuel. The technology, while focused on civil nuclear power, could give the Saudis resources that could be used to build nuclear weapons. The plan would also have pumped billions into a number of U.S. companies involved in the nuclear industry, including the bankrupt nuclear services company Westinghouse Electric, which would have built the reactors. Jeffrey Lewis, a non-proliferation expert at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies, told NPR's Ari Shapiro in an interview that the details in the report were bonkers balls. Can't come up with a better word. It's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. It's a half-baked, grandiose plan with all kinds of things that could go wrong in it and people screaming at them to stop, and they don't stop. Despite repeated wave-offs by national security officials, Members of the White House team and Trump confidants outside the White House, including Tom Barak, the chairman of the Trump Inauguration Committee and a close friend of the president, continued to press forward on the scheme. Barak, who urged Trump to take on Paul Manafort as his campaign manager, also tried to broker a secret meeting between Manafort and the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, according to a New York Times official report. Holy shit. So remember when... The Russia investigation kicked off. Um, I was skeptical. And one of my main arguments was, you're not going to find, like, conspiracy. You're not going to find collusion with the Russian government. But what you are going to find is, number one, business corruption. I'm sure Trump has done money laundering for shady-ass characters. I'm sure he's done tax evasion, and roughly about a dozen different financial crimes that you can get them on uh, if you try. So I've predicted on this show, and I stand by this prediction, the day Donald Trump is no longer president, he will be indicted. However, I don't think that the Mueller report is going to give many Democrats what they're looking for, which is treason, collusion, conspiracy with Russia. It's not going to happen, I don't think. Now, but one of the things that I did tell you, especially when the news came out about Michael Flynn and Paul Manafort and how um, Mueller got them is that everybody around Donald Trump is a narcissistic grifter. And they're looking to get paid however they get paid. 
And in the case of uh, Michael Flynn, he worked with the Turkish government, took money, hundreds of thousands of dollars from the Turkish government, and then he pushed D.C. and the Trump administration to not arm the Kurds to fight ISIS, which was what the policy was going to be. And the reason why he was pushing for that is because the Turkish government hates the Kurds and they didn't want them armed. So Michael Flynn basically was carrying water for the Turkish government without registering as a foreign agent, which is a crime. Okay, but in the case of Manafort, same thing. He was working for uh, Ukraine, pushing for their interests in the U.S. government. And now we learn, and I, and I always thought this was the case, you're always going to find Israel and Saudi Arabia. There's the most collusion between the Israeli government and the Trump administration and the Saudi government and the Trump administration. Now, in the case of Israel, it had to do with, remember that um, symbolic slap on the wrist that John Kerry and, Donald Trump and uh, uh, Barack Obama did on the way out the door, where at the U.N., they abstained from the vote where the international community said we're condemning the illegal settlements. Uh, what happened was Trump was president-elect at that point, and factions of the Israeli government reached out to the Trump team and tried to get them to stop the UN from uh, basically condemning Israel. So that was one example of collusion between the Israeli government and uh, the president-elect at that point. And then other examples are Jared Kushner's taken millions and millions of dollars from Israeli banks, and he's pushing for Israeli interests behind the scenes. And, you know, there is speculation, and it's probably merited, that as a direct result of the financial ties between the Israeli government and the Trump administration, uh, that's one of the reasons why you got the approval from the Trump administration for um, the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem. So... There's a lot of shady shit going on. Now, in the case of Saudi Arabia, we already know Trump is up to his eyeballs in lawsuits on that front because he violated the Emoluments Clause. At his hotel in D.C., he's taken money from the Saudi government, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and then he turns around and, of course, he gave them a massive uh, weapons deal, of billions and billions of dollars worth of weapons, as they massacre women and children in Yemen, by the way. And now we know that other corrupt-ass actors in Trump's administration working behind the scenes to try to get Saudi Arabia nuclear technology. I mean, think about that. We say wrongly Iran is the number one state sponsor of terrorism. No, they're not. The terror attacks are not from Shia Muslims, which is what Iran is. It's a Shia country. The terror attacks are from Wahhabi Muslims, so ultra-Orthodox Sunni Muslims. We say Iran's the number one state sponsor of terrorism. That's not true. You know who is, though? Saudi Arabia. And we want to give that government nuclear technology, and they were working behind the scenes to fucking do it. This is a real, this is way bigger than any Russia bullshit that people are talking about right now. Holy shit. Jesus Christ. We're trying to give nuclear technology to an unstable government in a region of the world where Salafi, Wahhabi, Islam is the dominant ideology? That is fucking nuts, dude. Everybody should oppose this. And then, by the way, the worst part is this triggers a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. Is that what this world needs? A nuclear arms race in the Middle East? I mean, we're already on edge because of uh, what the U.S. and Russia are doing. How we're, all, you know, we got NATO troops on their border and U.S. warships in the Black Sea and we got, uh, you know... 
we are armed to the fucking teeth, but then you also got Pakistan and India, and they're armed to the teeth, and they have a dispute, and who knows what the fuck's going to happen there. And now we want Saudi Arabia, and, and then if Saudi gets them, Iran has to get them. And this is what we want in this world? We are not marching towards nuclear annihilation, and nobody's even talking about it. Okay. Now we got another scary story, this time involving Russia. So um, what you're about to see is absolutely devastating and petrifying. Um, and your reaction to this should be to be scared. Everybody should be. If you're thinking straight, that should be your reaction. Uh, this broke yesterday, and it's being largely ignored. Breaking, President Vladimir Putin warns new Russian weapons will target U.S. if it deploys missiles to Europe. Okay, so first of all, we pulled out of what was it called, the IMF Treaty? We pulled out of this uh, treaty to not build any more nuclear weapons. Then Russia, in turn, pulls out of the treaty as well. Um, by the way, I love how shitty U.S. media is because we pulled out of it first, but a lot of the headlines were massively misleading, and they made it seem like Russia pulled out first when Russia pulled out. But no, they were doing it in direct retaliation to us pulling out. Okay, so we pull out of one of the crowning achievements of the end of the Cold War, which would mean almost by definition we're in a new Cold War. Um, now, we're doing that at the same time we have a NATO troop buildup on Russia's border. At the same time, we have U.S. warships in the Black Sea. And now we learn, as I just told you here, Putin warns that new Russian we weapons will target the U.S. if we deploy missiles to Europe. So that's what we want to do. The U.S. government wants to put missiles in Europe pointed at Russia. So this could get us right back into a Cuban Missile Crisis type situation. And all while this is going on, by the way, you know when a good time to resist would be? Now? Resist. Go ahead, please. Resist. All the Democrats, resist hard. But they're not doing it. Why? Because resisting would mean admitting that the narrative of Donald Trump as Putin's puppet is bullshit. Because this is not Putin's puppet. The real scandal with Trump and Russia is that they're continually moving um, chess pieces here to get into a worse standoff with each other. Like I just told you, NATO troops on the border, U.S. warships in the Black Sea. So we're escalating to the brink of war with another nuclear power. And the only thing you hear from the opposition party is, oh, you should be more hawkish. And then when he does hawkish shit, there's no, they don't acknowledge it. They're not like, oh, okay, obviously he's not Putin's puppet. He's about to make us go to war with it. So this is what I've been screaming about for the longest time, that the thing that scares me the most is you have the Democrats in the era of Trump oftentimes resisting from the right. So what happened with Syria? Trump tweeted, oh, we're going to get out of Syria. Predictably, so many Democrats came out and said, oh, how could you? you pull, you're pulling out of Syria, and you don't even tell your advisors. <gasps> you're doing foreign policy by tweet. That was the argument. No, the real argument is he tweeted we're getting out of Syria. He didn't actually take us out of Syria. So the resistance should be... Hey, asshole, get us out of Syria. What the fuck are you doing? It's an illegal war in the first place. Why the fuck are we there? Get out. Get out. So, again, to bring it back to Russia, the resistance, well, nobody's talking about this because it counteracts their narrative of Trump as Putin's puppet, but I wish people would talk about it, and I wish the left and the Democratic Party would say, holy shit, number one, get back in that fucking treaty, you asshole. 
we got to get back in that treaty. It's a crowning achievement of the Cold War, and we should get back in it right now. Okay. Number two, stop doing the NATO buildup on, on Russia's border. Number three, get those uh, ships out of the Black Sea. Number four, get out of Syria, because there's also, um, you know, a conflict with the U.S. and Syria. It's kind of a proxy war in a weird way. We're backing the rebels. The Russian government is backing the Assad government. So this is, I want you to resist from the left, but this is not even being uh, talked about because it contradicts the narrative of Trump as Putin's puppet. So it's fucking unbelievable. And by the way, final point I'll make in this video, we haven't talked about this before, but there was a Senate report that just came out not too long ago which said there's no evidence of a Trump-Russia conspiracy. So Senate, um, you know, the Senate um, committee with Republicans and Democrats, they said, oh, no, there's no uh, direct evidence of a Trump-Russia conspiracy, and that was ignored by the Trump-Russia crowd. And the Mueller report's about to come out very soon, and it appears like all the little hints in, and the stories that are be, being dropped, the indication is, like I told you from day one, you're not going to get them on um, you're not going to get them on collusion. You're not going to get them on treason. You're not going to get them on conspiracy. Now, again, relax, take a couple deep breaths, because that does not mean what you think it means. Is Donald Trump a criminal? You bet your fucking ass he's a criminal. He violates the emolument clause on a day-in and day-out basis. Donald Trump, the day he's no longer president, will get indicted, and it will be over money laundering and a bunch of financial crimes. So fear not. He will get his day. Okay, but it's not going to be like you think it is. It's not going to be, oh, my God, big impeachment hearing and, oh, my God, collusion and, um, and treason and all that stuff. Not happening. But I just want to tell everybody up front, there are real scandals here, and they're not being talked about because it contradicts the mainstream bullshit narrative. All right, final story of the day. So NBC News has an interesting report out that you're really going to get a kick out of. Take a look. The Trump administration is launching a global campaign to end the criminalization of homosexuality in dozens of nations where it's still illegal to be gay, U.S. official tells NBC News, a bid aimed in part at denouncing Iran over its human rights record. All right, pause. There was always going to be a catch to this. That's the catch. Now, we're going to go into more detail about this in a second. I'll read you some more uh, of the article. But just know that today an article came out where Trump was asked about his effort to decriminalize homosexuality around the world, and he was like, wait, what? I don't know what you're talking about. So he wasn't even up to date with the new propaganda that his administration is trying to use in order to do regime change in Iran. By the way, make no mistake about it. That's exactly what this is about. Again, I'll give you more information that shows you that in a second. But suffice to say, the idea of, hey, should we decriminalize homosexuality around the world? Yes, of course we should. Not only that, gay, le gay marriage should be legal in every country. So I'm 100% on board with that. But how do you get to that point? And then also, how are they going to enforce this? That's the question. And again, let me give you more on that. So they continue. U.S. Ambassador to Germany Richard Grenell, the highest profile openly gay person in the Trump administration, is leading the effort, which kicks off Tuesday evening in Berlin. The U.S. Embassy is flying in LGBT activists from across Europe for a strategy dinner to plan to push for decriminalization in places that still outlaw homosexuality, mostly concentrated in the Middle East, Africa, and the Caribbean. It is concerning that in the 21st century, some 70 countries continue to have laws that criminalize LGBT status or conduct, said a U.S. official involved in organizing the event, narrow, uh, narrowly focused on criminalization 
rather than broader LGBT issues like same-sex marriage. The campaign was conceived partly in response to the recent reporter's execution uh, by hanging of a young gay man in Iran, the Trump administration's top geopolitical foe. Grenell, as Trump's envoy to Germany, has been an outspoken Iran critic and has aggressively pressed European nations to abandon the 2015 nuclear deal and reimpose sanctions. But while the Trump administration has had some success in pressuring Iran through stepped-up U.S. penalties, efforts to bring the Europeans along have thus far largely fallen flat. Reframing the conversation on Iran around a human rights issue that enjoys broad support in Europe could help the United States and Europe reach a point of agreement on Iran. Grenell called the hanging a wake-up call for anyone who supports basic human rights um, in Build, a leading German newspaper this month. Okay, so 72 nations still criminalize homosexuality. In eight nations, it's punishable by death. On that list, it includes United Arab Emirates, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. U.S. allies. Even though we're at war with Afghanistan, we're allied with the government against the Taliban. Long story. Um, So in Egypt, Trump has heaped praise on Sisi, who's the dictator of Egypt. Um, Gay relations aren't illegal, but the morality uh, police are used aggressively to target gay people. So there are countless examples of nations that are our allies that effectively criminalize homosexuality. They're launching this. Now, think about it. What makes the most sense? Oh, we're going to launch this effort to decriminalize homosexuality the world over. Great. That's wonderful. So step one would be what? I'll tell you what I would do. Oh, we're going to cut off all aid to our allied governments that criminalize homosexuality unless and until they decriminalize it. Simple. And that, by the way, might actually work. That might work. Oh, you know, however much we get, I don't know how much we give. Say we give $2 billion a year or something to, to Pakistan. Sorry, you're not getting $2 billion. You're getting donut unless and until you decriminalize homosexuality. You know what will happen? Very quickly. They'll say, oh, no, oh, it's still illegal on the books, but we're not going to enforce it. There will be a movement in the right direction if you do that. So, yet again, it goes back to the Chomsky quote. We are responsible for what we do. So when we arm... Saudi Arabia, we arm Israel, we arm and back and prop up the Pakistani government. Okay, we can do something about that. Their harms are partly on us by extension because we prop them up. So we can stop that. You know what we can't do anything about? The Iranian government. They're not our ally. We don't fund them. So what are we going to do about it? How are you going to make Iran decriminalize homosexuality? Now, should they do that? Of course they should do that. But how do we make them do that? Regime change. So, and listen, that's why, as part of this effort, they're like, oh, we're totally against the, the Iran deal. Exactly. So you're using the issue of gay rights cynically to try to do regime change in governments that are not playing ball with U.S. interests. That's what this is. So, and there's a reason why I'm covering this story. It shows you the cynical motives, and it shows you the playbook for how to try to build consensus among good people. By the same token, in 2002, with the build-up of the Iraq war, it was framed as, you're a monster if you don't want to topple this guy because he's a fucking evil dictator, genocidal maniac, and obviously you have to be against him. And, you know, it's easy to fall for propaganda like that because you think, well, what? I'm not a heartless asshole. I have to be in favor of this. But there's always ulterior motives, and you have to look at what those power centers' ulterior motives are before you really make a decision. So I 100% support decriminalizing homosexuality around the world. question is, how do we get to that point? 
And what they're trying to do here is not really even get to that point. They don't care about it. They're not even going to put pressure on our ally governments. They're going to use this specifically to try to force regime change in countries that are not our allies and don't play ball. So now you know what's really going on here. Spread the word. Okay. We done, baby. I love y'all. We'll see you on the next show. Everybody enjoy your weekend. I'm out. Peace.